Welcome, everybody. How are you doing today? I don't know if you know this, but I start with that almost every single week. Who's catching on? Whether you're here in person or joining in online, we're so glad that you are here. I'm Jason. I'm one of the pastors. Whether this is your home church, whether you're visiting for us, whether you're just checking out this whole reality that is Sea Road, we are so glad and thankful that you are here. I've been thinking about this question this week. We're going to get ready to celebrate communion in just a few moments. I've been thinking about what is most precious to us. I've been thinking about it because I think in our world today, we spend a whole bunch of time trying to figure out and then pursue what is most precious to us. In so many different ways, that is what we do. And then when I look at the life of Jesus, I see somebody who's figured it out. He's somebody who looks at you and he looks at me and he says, that's what matters. They are most precious to me. So much so that he lives a life that is full of intrigue and wonder and inspiration and, yes, frustration. He lives this life that you and I have the privilege of learning from and patterning our own lives after. He's obedient in his life to his Father who sent him to love us, to show us that we are most precious. On the night before his final day on this planet, Jesus is hanging out with a group of his closest friends and they're having dinner. And he knows what's about to happen. He knows he's going to experience the most pain that he has ever gone through. He knows what's waiting for him in just a few short hours. And still, he celebrates with those who are most precious to him. If you've got your communion elements ready at this time, we're going to partake together. Jesus, around this meal with his closest friends, he grabs some bread. He takes the bread and he breaks it. He interrupts the conversation that's bubbling up around the table. He interrupts the fighting, the questions, whatever might be going on. And he breaks this bread and he passes it around and he says, this is my body broken for you. Eat it in remembrance of me. Let us eat together and remember the goodness of God and that we are most precious to him. A little while later during that same meal, Jesus picks up a cup of wine and once again interrupts whatever conversation or questions or bartering is going on around the table. And he says that this cup is a covenant written in my blood. Drink it in remembrance of me. May we drink together and remember we are most, most precious to our Lord and King. Let me pray. Father, what a privilege it is to be gathered together in your name. Father, it's a privilege to be loved by you. And admittedly, it is something that I often take for granted, like the sun rising or the sun setting or the mosquitoes finally going away. Father, here today in these next moments, 
may we stand in the affirmation that we are loved dearly by you. You love us so much that you don't want us to stay right where we are. You want us to become who you've created and intended us to be. And so over these next few moments as we dive into a piece of your word to learn from it, to be shaped by it, to be inspired, and dare I say it, maybe even frustrated by it, would you guide us? Would you call us by our names? Would you remind us that we are most precious and we are what matters to you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue on that precious theme. If you've got a Bible with you, we're going to dive right into our unfolding series called The Art of Hope, walking through the book of Philippians. And we're going to be looking at the beginning of chapter 3. So you're going to want to open up your Bible to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to look at the first 11 verses. And if you're going, Jason, I forgot my Bible today, but I brought my coffee. Good for you. That's awesome. You can download on your mobile device the YouVersion Bible app. Go to the More section right on the home screen. The Events Live and Sea Road Live is right there. You can follow along right from your device if you so choose. The first 11 verses from the book of Philippians are this. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on, the, on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. Though I could have confidence in my own effort, if anyone could, indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight years old. I am pure-blooded. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew, if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were valuable. But now, I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. It's a really interesting set of words and phrases that Paul stitches together at this point in this letter. We're going to uncover a, a few pieces regarding faith. That's the big word that kind of bubbles up. When we understand what should be the most important thing to us as followers of Jesus, if we claim that title and that mantle and that identity as our own, it needs to be our faith. 
And there's two ways that faith kind of shapes who we are. We're going to dive into that a little bit more. The first is this. Faith changes you and me. Faith changes you and it changes me. What's really important to remember here in this context, in this setting, is when Paul starts writing about all these things that he could have confidence in, those were the things that were greatly valued by Jewish culture and society at that time. Their whole construct in, in their culture was quite different than what we understand here today. I'm going to try to contemporize it a little bit, but first give us some baseline understanding of what it is we're uncovering as Paul's writing about these things. There was a checklist, things that you should do and shouldn't do, that were highly valued by Jewish citizens. There's 12 tribes that make up the whole massive nation of Israel based on Jacob who had 12 sons. Jacob who was also known by a second name that God gave him, Israel. 12 sons, 12 different tribes, all interrelated. He just so happened to have a favorite son, somebody named Joseph. And Joseph had a brother, a younger full-blood brother named Benjamin. When Joseph passed on, his two sons were kind of, kind of given this mantle of leading a, a section of the group of Israel. And then Benjamin kind of took over as being the favored one. And so out of all the tribes in Israel, being from a descendant of the tribe of Benjamin was like the cream of the crop, the elite. I don't know what version of life contemporizes that here today. All I know is that here in our culture, I hear this phrase way too much. If you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. <laughs> I'm not Dutch, so obviously I'm not a part of the tribe of Benjamin, okay? But we value our heritage in various ways. In the Jewish culture, if you were from that tribe of Benjamin, there was something special about you. You were set apart. You were seen as a little bit more significant than somebody else. Where you came from mattered. He also talks about being a pure blood. What that meant is both his mother and his father were of this Benjamin Jewish heritage. That's impressive. There was not intermingling in his family tree. There wasn't somebody else from another country that got kind of grafted into the whole legacy of the community that he was a part of. He was the purest of the pure of the pure. They had all these different rules. If you were a son on the eighth day of your arrival on the planet, you were supposed to be circumcised as a sign and a symbol to be set apart from God. Set apart for God, not from God to be a celebration, a reminder that you are important and you're valid and that your life is going to be lived in dedication to him. Thankfully, now in this day and age, we talk about child dedication as opposed to child mutilation. Not only that, but he would have been schooled in the upper elite schools because, again, he was a tribe of Benjamin, pure blood. He had all of these opportunities unfold before him. It's like having a blank check and you could go to any university you wanted to to study from any leader that you wanted to learn from. That was Paul's upbringing. Then he was uh, connected with this tribe of Pharisees. Now the Pharisees were like, there was this caste system. People, right? This elite reality that existed in the culture. 
And, and the group of spiritual leaders was the same thing. They'd have these different layers and levels. There could be like people that didn't make the cut, like you and I, like the farmers and the fishermen. All you could do is go and do a trade. And so we don't listen to you or anything that God might want to say through you because you don't matter as much as those who have been educated. Then you had the Sadducees where they were a little bit less than the Pharisees. They, they kind of made it through some of the stuff, some of the learning stuff, some of the, the criteria to be considered the religious superior or elite. And then you had the Pharisees that controlled everything. And so if you were a part of that Pharisee group, you were considered as a man of, of means or a man of influence. What Paul is writing about is like, hey, I was all in that. So much so that my zeal led me to the top. I don't know if you've ever been the best at something. I don't know what that's like, but I imagine that it's pretty amazing. Like being the best dodgeball player where nobody can ever hit you. It's like the matrix and you dodge everything. When you throw the ball, you can will it to do whatever you want and slay your target. It's pretty awesome when you see some of our youth try and do this in the gymnasium on, on Wednesdays when they play dodgeball. I have, a, I have it on a, a good authority that at some point there's going to be a parents versus youth showdown. And then we'll see who the elite really are. But being the best at something being gifted and skilled and given the opportunity to, to excel, that's where Paul was. He did everything right in the way that you should have done it. All of the things of his family history pointed to excellence, pointed to elitist, pointed to the best of the best. And still all of that amounts to nothing unless it's steeped in Christ. And that's what Paul starts writing about. He's like, listen, I get it. We human beings like to brag about who we are. We like to brag about our own experience. We like to speak into our own reality in various forms. But all of it doesn't matter. It amounts to what Paul writes as garbage, unless Christ is the initiator around all of it. Faith changes you and it changes me. If faith what is, is what is most precious to us, then we can look at the way that we live our lives and see that in every facet of our world, it bubbles up. Our faith isn't meant for something for us to just kind of dust off the shelf once a week and kind of be like, hey, woo, play the faith card, boom. There we go, I win. Faith forms us, it shapes us, it inspires us. Sometimes it frustrates us. In every facet of our lives, when we are following Jesus, we need to, in submission, allow him to build alongside of us what it should look like. If our faith is not yet changing us, we might not have faith. Now, what is faith? It's this like nebulous thing of like, how do we define it? 
Here at Sea Road, we use this really simple definition. It's to love and to live like Jesus. That's what faith is, and that's what it looks like. And essentially, this is what Paul is writing to this church in Philippi. He's saying, look, of all the things that you need to be remembered, or you need to be reminded of, and you need to remember, it's that faith is the most important. Don't miss it, and don't lose it. Don't devalue it. Don't forget it. Pursue it. Sometimes we need to be reminded that our faith is, is worth investing in. I spoke to my financial planner about uh, two and a half, three weeks ago, talking about retirement. I'm only 41. I got lots of years. I, I said I was hoping to have freedom 75. That's my goal. It's my runway. And we're talking about retirement and planning for it. And he was walking me through this portfolio in, of investments and how he's, you know, investing our money in different things. And I was like, oh, cool, that sounds like fun. And he was talking about some funds that were performing and some funds that were underperforming. And I said to him, well, why wouldn't we invest more money in the thing that's performing? And he's like, well, that's a really good question. Good, keen insight. And I was like, huh, I'm a financial planner. Look at that. The thing is, is we invest in what is most precious to us. When faith matters and it has value and it's a priority, we will invest in it. Now, that investment looks a lot different than just coming together on a Sunday. That investment looks like taking it into every facet of our lives and pursuing it. When you've got a conflict at work or at home, it's taking your faith into the middle of that conflict, asking yourself, what does it mean to love and live like Jesus in this space? Sometimes it's going to mean taking an insult that is unjustified. Sometimes it's going to mean standing up and saying something that is true. But you're not going to know which one it is unless you're prioritizing your faith and taking it into that environment and that space. Our faith changes everything. I don't know about you, but if I didn't have Jesus in my life, I think that my life would be a lot different than it is today. Some of you might agree with this and, and think that I am a self, selfish type person. And if you talk to my kids, they'll say like, yeah, totally, dad buys desserts and doesn't give us any of it. But imagine if Jesus wasn't in my life, I'd do that even more, children. If without Christ navigating and, and pursuing and helping me in all as avenues and areas of my life, I would be a lot different than I am today. A lot more self-seeking and self-serving than willing to partner with what Jesus is doing. Maybe you don't know this about me, but uh, animals and me, eh, unless I'm eating them, not so much. Right? Not a big thing. Since moving to Brockville, we've been gifted with uh, wonderful neighbors, Chris and Vicki. 
Chris and Vicky are, are next door, and they've had to put up with a lot. Because there's seven Frizzells, and there's lots of volume and lots of voices, lots of opinions, and dare I even say it, arguments that filter over the fence like there's no invisible kind of shield sound barrier. And they filter over the fence and flood into the backyard of our neighbors. Vicky's been walking through a, a challenge with some health-related issues regarding cancer. So for the last three weeks, they've been going to Kingston every single day, getting treatments and setting them up for what they hope to be will be a long road towards recovery. And in the midst of that, they've got these two dogs. They've got these two dogs that are small and they're loud and they're unique and they're squirrely and I don't even know, maybe a little bit angsty. Can dogs be angsty? These ones are. And before this three-week journey, Chris had a, an over-the-fence conversation with me, and he just asked if I'd be available to dog-sit for three weeks. So what that means is going and running these two little dudes out for potty breaks every day during the week. Jesus wasn't in my life. There's no way I would do it. 100%. I can say that with 100% certainty. I have no compassion. I have no care. But because it's my neighbors, it matters. Faith changes you. If it hasn't yet changed you, go back to what it is. It's to love and live like Jesus. Love and live like Jesus. Live and love like Jesus. Reprioritize your world so those are two cylinders, two pistons that drive you forward. Love and live like Jesus in every environment that you can. This is not a checklist. I love when Paul writes about his reality. and He's like, here's the checklist that I worked through. He hit all the boxes and it wasn't enough. Because if Jesus isn't driving it, and if Jesus isn't inspiring it, then nothing that you and I do matters. Nothing. It will not have the eternal impact that we so desire. Our faith, it changes us. The other thing about faith is that it not only changes us, our faith changes those around us. Our faith changes those around us. When we live it out, it changes those around us. That doesn't mean they become benefactors of our faith. It doesn't mean that we can, they can kind of dovetail into our faith and because of that faith then find, you know, eternal security in Jesus or anything like that. They have to make that own decision for themselves, but they will take notice. Our faith gives us this layer of influence that is previously non-existent by the way we choose to live our lives. Our faith can change those around us in some way. The classic happens when I get into conversations with people that I haven't met before and they find out what I do for a living. They're like, oh, what do you do for a living? And I'm like, oh, I'm a pastor. They're like, oh, I guess I should stop swearing then. Like, right away, that's where they go to. I don't know if that's, that's like the number one criteria. Like, ooh. Sorry about the last five minutes. 
right? And then they usually use another expletive, and then they're like, oh, sorry again. I don't, how do I do this? That's a really weird example. But sometimes when people find out about what really drives you and motivates you, they shift and they change. I've heard stories about men in this church who are the people that their coworkers go to when they have a deep need for prayer. And these co-workers don't even know anything about Jesus. They wouldn't be following Jesus, but that they know there's a Jesus person. And so they go to the Jesus person and they say, could you, could you pray for me? I remember when I was studying to be a pastor, I was working at Pepsi Bottling Group alongside of my dad who was in the maintenance area. And I can't tell you how many times I'd get a radio call from somebody in the maintenance department asking me to pray for a piece of machinery so that they could get it running. It was like a running joke to them, but I was like, Jesus, would you just do some miracle? Would you show up and be like, boom, ha-ha, see, Jesus did it, you didn't do it, you can't deny that he exists. Faith changes the people around you when you live it out. They become curious. They become cranky. They try to test the boundaries. They try to push you. They try to agitate you. They try to unnerve you at times. It's not them doing it. It's the other thing in our world that motivates people. And that's the enemy, the evil one, the antithesis of love. That's why it's so important for us to understand that faith changes us so that we then can understand that faith changes those around us. The way we love and the way we live, it matters because it speaks to the risen king that we serve if we call ourselves a Christian. Now, if you would read on through the book of Philippians in this third chapter, you hear about two young men that Paul invests in, a dude named Timothy and somebody else that has a fancy name that starts with the letter E that I can't pronounce, and so I'm going to call him E. So Timothy and E are these two young men that aren't biologically or, or even legally connected to Paul in any way, shape, or form. And what he does is he says, look, I'm, I'm in prison. I can't visit you. I'm going to send these two guys to you to be an encouragement, to help remind you of some of the things that we've talked about previously, but also so that you can be strengthened in your faith. See, Paul was changed on a deep personal level because of his faith and because of that reality and that change that he walked through. That change started impacting the people around him. So much so that he had to find individuals that he could be, begin investing in and discipling and mentoring and helping to become who God created them to be. And these two young men and individuals, in my opinion, did even greater things than Paul himself was able to do. When Paul was stuck in prison, not able to be in certain places, these individuals would go where they were sent with the gospel of Jesus, with their faith in their hands and in their hearts, and they'd speak hope and life 
into dormant souls and allow those people to wrestle with the truth and the reality of who Jesus is for the very first time. And some of them came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Paul recognized that it isn't faith unless there's change in me and unless I'm partnering in change with the Holy Spirit in the lives of others. It's multiplication. See, the moment that you and I come to know Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior is the moment our adventure begins. We're invited into this unfolding reality where we can partner with what he wants to do in our world by loving people and living like Jesus would have. So much so that he invites us to help create, co-create alongside of him a group of women and men that love him deeply so that they in turn can do that with others. It's the kingdom reality of, of multiplication and growth and extension and hope. And there's an art to it. There's not a science. Some people are much easier to connect with than other people. Some people you will not jive with. Some people are put into your life so that you can learn how to love the unlovable. And in turn, they become the greatest gifts that you ever could have been given. Our faith changes those around us. I'm reminded of the story of one of our high school kids here at Sea Road. He was sitting through one of their classes, and their teacher went on a tirade about Christians. And how Christians are anti-this, anti-whatever, and they really actually don't care about anybody but themselves. And this individual who is typically outspoken and typically courageous was in utter shock as they were hearing this reality and these untruths being spoken about Jesus, about Christians, and about faith. This whole chaos ensues in their classroom, but because of who this individual is, all of the other classmates in that same conversation came up after that class in various ways through a text or in person to this individual and said, hey, wait, what you have told us about Jesus is way different than what this teacher was saying about Jesus. What's up with that? And even in the most challenging of circumstances, here's one of our teenagers, our very own sea rotors, able to speak about who Jesus is to those people who may not have heard Jesus in other ways. Our faith changes us and it changes those around us. And if this individual was not living out their faith on a daily basis, they would have never had that privilege of sharing the truth about who Jesus is with people who do not yet know him. So in the middle of our pain, our uncertainty, in the middle of our confusion and chaos, it is our faith that should drive us forward. Not out of obligation or duty, but out of love. Because we are what is most precious 
to our Lord and Savior who gave up everything for us. Which is crazy, because if I'm honest, I wouldn't have taken that risk on me. Not a chance. But he did, and he does. Our faith changes us. Our faith changes those around us. It's soon to be summer. That's what they say. I'm not holding my breath. And over summer, lots of different opportunities bubble up. We've got cottage country. We've got vacations. We've got a different pace of life. Sometimes it's more intense. Sometimes it's less intense. And over this summer, we're going to be diving into a character study series from the book of Judges. But I want to challenge you and I want to challenge myself over this summer around this whole reality that I'm calling my three names. See, I'm convinced that nobody gets the opportunity to know who Jesus is without somebody that's been intentionally praying for them for years, or for days, or even for minutes. Some of us just take a lot longer to marinate and pickle, as it were. And so what I'm going to do over this summer is I'm committing on a personal level to start praying for three people by name as often as God brings them to mind, whether that's daily or bi-weekly. People who do not yet know Jesus who are in my relational orbit that I'm going to bump up into and rub shoulders with in some capacity this summer. I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask God to do what he can to change their lives. And I'm going to ask God to give me eyes to see what he's doing in their lives so I can partner with that. How I can love and live like Jesus more intentionally in those relationships. That's the first phase of my three names. I'm going to encourage you and challenge you to do the very same thing. We all know people. Some of us know the same people. Some of us know different people. What if this summer we were really intentional about praying for the people in our lives who do not yet know Jesus or who've walked away from Jesus like decades previously that need to return and, remind, and be reminded that they are most precious to God, that their faith should be the thing that they're investing in more and more and more each day so that they can actually live the abundant life that God invites us into. Imagine if a couple of hundred of us did that. Like, let's just be conservative. Let's say there's 200 sea roaders. There's more of us. But let's say 200 are like, okay, fine. I'll do this challenge. The other several hundred are like, my plate's full. I'm good. 200 of us prayed for three people all this summer. 600 people. Like, that's easy math. Financial planner. Remember I said I was? 600 people who do not yet know Jesus are being prayed for intentionally. You don't think that God's going to do something there? In us? In them? We want to make a difference in our world and in our region? Let's pray. The battle belongs to the Lord. Let's pray. We've got the people who are almost unlovable. Let's pray. What if we did that? Our world would change. We would change. That would be amazing. But it doesn't stop there. 
Because there's this other reality. Paul is investing in people like Timothy and his, and his other friend named E. And he's investing in them with, with his life in some way, shape, and form. Sometimes that's spending physical time with them. Sometimes that's just praying for them. These young men who already know Jesus, he's investing in them. He's spending their capitals that he has, intellectual capital and emotional capital and spiritual capital and physical capital. He's investing it in these individuals so that they can invest in other people. That's called discipleship. It's called mentoring. It's called growth. It's called multiplication. The other side of the my three names strategy is to find those three names. Asking God, who is in my life that you are calling me to invest in intentionally? Who is in my life that you're calling me to invest in intentionally? And if you do the math, we've got from now until the end of August, you've got like almost 12 weeks. 12 weeks that you can invest in somebody. You can do a lot in 12 weeks. A lot of good and a lot of bad. But what if we as a church family, again, just 200 of us, maybe, maybe less, maybe this ask is, is too hard, maybe 100 of us would find and pray for three people that maybe we're not related to in some way, that don't live in our household, but God has placed on our hearts and minds to invest in and pray for. And if there are 100 of us that started doing that intentionally, do the math. 100 times 3 is what? Come on, financial planners. It's 300. 300 people motivated like Timothy, like E, and like so many others that come out of Paul's life that he invested in and mentored because he knew that his faith changes not only him, but it changes those around us. My three names. When I think about all this, I think about a puzzle. And I think about all the pieces that are needed in a puzzle. And if you've ever done a puzzle and you get to the end and you, you're missing a piece, what happens? You get frustrated, right? Something's missing. It's not all there. I got to think that sometimes that's the way God feels about his plan for you and I and his plan for the world and the region in which we live. He's building something. He's weaving together the most intense tapestry that is gorgeous and wonderful and inspirational in every sense of the word. And he needs you and I to partner with him in that creation because he wants to build with us. As we dive into this my three names reality, I want us to be reminded of pieces of a puzzle. So what we're going to do here today, and those of you online, you'll just have to maybe clip a, a, a graphic of a puzzle piece and participate in some way. Or maybe grab a puzzle that's in your house that you don't like anymore and you can use it for this illustration. In this space and in this environment, we've created small little pillars of puzzle pieces. I've got three up front here. I've got one up in the balcony and the table. 
And what I want us to do, if, if you want to partner with the My Three Names strategy, is I want you to physically go and pick up a piece, a puzzle piece. Because maybe as I've been yakking up here, God's put names on your heart of people that you can pray for that do not yet know who Jesus is. And I want you to put their initials on this puzzle piece. It's not a massive piece. So if you're writing a full name like Constantine, you're going to take up your whole puzzle. So you put your initials on there of that individual or those individuals that you're going to pray for. And maybe, maybe you're saying like, Jason, I only have one person. That's good. Start there and ask for more. And then maybe you're going to put on the, the, the initials of the other individuals that God's been asking you to invest in intentionally. It's been a privilege to be able to do that here in our church, even through COVID, as I've spent time with some young men in our congregation, investing and praying together and learning together. Man, is it fun. Guess what happens? Their faith changes me. Their faith inspires me. Their questions make me want to draw closer to Jesus. I'm also reminded of them getting older and what a privilege that is. And so over these next few moments after I pray, I want to invite you to grab a piece. These are your three names, three people you're praying for that don't yet know Jesus, three people you're going to invest in who have no biological or legal connection to you because Jesus is asking you, not because I am, but because Jesus is. Because we need, we need him to change our world. Post-pandemic, let's, cre- let's create a new narrative forward. One that is steeped in the presence of Jesus. And he is just waiting to use people just like you and me to make this possible. Because we are what is most precious to him. We are what is most precious to him. So let me pray, and at your leisure... Inspired by God, grab your puzzle pieces, maybe grab a Sharpie, write those letters, and let's pray, unlike we've ever prayed before, for God to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. Let's pray together today. Father, we are thankful. I am so grateful for your love. I'm so grateful for your presence so grateful for the truth that we never have to walk through life alone. And I know, Jesus, there are times where I'm facing something that it feels like I'm alone because I can't physically see you, but I know that you are there with me because you've promised us. And so we claim and we cling to that promise. Jesus, as a church family, we want to partner with what you are doing in our world. And so, God, we're going to courageously launch forward into this my three names reality. Three people that we are praying for that, we, that don't yet know Jesus and three people that you have been prompting us to connect with and disciple and mentor. Jesus, the only way we can go forward is if you lead us. Without you, there's no way forward. And so in these next few moments, would you give us the courage that we need to respond obediently to you? We want to be a group of men and women of all different ages, all different sizes, all different shapes that love you and love people. Help us to love and live like you in greater ways. This is not about us. This is about you. 
We want our faith to change us. We want our faith to change those around us. Would you lead and guide us here and now? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we worship and respond, let's grab your pieces as God leads you. Write those initials and let's start praying.